0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When first responders need to subdue someone, they might use handcuffs, a taser, or a drug called ketamine. We need
1: something that works rapidly because otherwise a patient is actually putting themselves or the people that are trying to care for them at risk.
0: But ketamine comes with its own risks, and it was used in a man who later died in police custody in Aurora, coming up the benefits and drawbacks of chemical restraint and what we still don't know about its use by first responders. Then, what it takes to keep the giant Monet show
2: in Denver safe from art thieves. Enough security visible in the gallery that the bad guy will look for it and see it, but the average visitor to the museum will not see it.
0: Plus, tapping the vast audio
2: archives
0: at History Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The fact just kept jumping out at us. In news coverage of a man who died in police custody earlier this year, It's been noted over and over again that he was chemically subdued with a drug called ketamine. This is the case of 23-year-old Elijah McLean, who was arrested in Aurora last August, then died in the hospital a few days later. Police there are still reviewing if officers handled things properly, but no charges will be filed in McLean's death. So what about this idea of being chemically subdued? We're going to hear from a medical expert in a moment. But first, a few top-line facts from CPR's Claire Cleveland. Hi, Claire.
3: Hi, Ryan. Can
0: we draw a line between this administering of ketamine and McLean's death?
3: We definitely cannot say it's the cause of his cardiac arrest. The coroner raised a number of possibilities, but one was that ketamine was mixed with marijuana or an undetectable drug in McLean's system, and that there was a drug reaction. Another possibility is that he died as a result of what's called a carotid control hold. So in this case, there was a mix of physical and chemical restraint.
0: Do we know of deaths from ketamine administered by first responders in Colorado?
3: The state tracks how often the drug is used in these circumstances and says there have been no deaths since 2011, which was when Colorado began issuing waivers.
0: Waivers? What do you mean waivers?
3: Well, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has to grant a waiver to agencies that want to use ketamine, either to subdue people experiencing what's called excited delirium or for pain management in a trauma situation. Without that waiver, ketamine's not on the list of approved medications for medics to administer.
0: Okay, so how many waivers is the state issued?
3: So 98 agencies are allowed to use ketamine for, as I said, pain management and for that condition, excited delirium. Essentially, someone who's considered out of control and a threat to themselves or others— Aurora Fire Rescue obviously has this waiver. So do first responders in Denver and Colorado Springs. And about a decade ago, Denver pushed for this use of ketamine, and it caught on in the state.
0: How often is ketamine administered under these circumstances, then?
3: The latest numbers the state has crunched are for 2018. That year, the drug was used nearly 1,400 times by first responders, not in a hospital setting. The vast majority was for pain management, but in 265 cases that year, it was to subdue people. Okay,
0: so mostly it's being used for pain. Sometimes it's being used as this chemical restraint. That's right. Claire, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Claire Cleveland, a Max Weisick News Fellow here at CPR. Let's learn more about first responders' use of chemical restraint from Dr. Andrew Monte. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine at the CU School of Medicine. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. Why is ketamine a drug medics use in these situations of excited delirium? In short, because
1: we don't have good options to treat that condition, and so we need safe drugs to sedate people to prevent harm.
0: Safe drugs. Would you call ketamine safe? In general, yes. It's one of the safest sedatives that we have. I think that people associate ketamine right now with being a street drug in a special K. Why why is it good at sedating people. This is a drug people presumably are also seeking out for a high.
1: That's exactly right, because it's known as a dissociative anesthetic. So it has some pain control, and it also actually causes people to have changes in their their mental status. And so it will alter their perception of things.
0: Okay. So the same reason that it might be sought out for recreational use is actually why it's used by medics.
1: Yes, that's right. And the reason why it's a little bit safer than others is because it doesn't actually depress respirations or blood pressure as much as other sedatives.
0: Depressing respiration. In other words, people have trouble breathing on other types of medication. That's not something you'd want uh, in the scenario of an arrest. That's precisely right. You say that there aren't a lot of drugs that are effective in the kind of excited delirium environment. Why, Why is that? Well, really, it's a combination of things. First and foremost,
1: we need something that works rapidly because... Otherwise, a patient is actually putting themselves or the people that are trying to care for them at risk. So we need something that is very fast onset and something that actually doesn't have those depressed respirations and depressed blood pressure and heart rate effects, like many of the other sedatives that we use do. But ketamine must come with its own risks, right? Indeed. You know, anytime we give a medication, there's risks of adverse drug events, and ketamine does have those risks as well. I will say that using it for sedation when people are agitated and delirious is a relatively newer indication for this medicine. So we're just starting to learn more and more about those adverse drug events. This is a brave new world, in other words? In some respects, I would say so. I mean, it's been used for many decades, but not necessarily in this particular patient population.
0: It was actually developed as a replacement for PCP, I think.
1: Well, um, yes. And I'll tell you, it's been used for many, many years actually in veterinary clinics to sedate animals. It's also been used for many, many years for um, in the emergency department. We use this every day in the emergency department to help us set bones and help patients through other painful procedures.
0: Would you like more questions answered about ketamine's use in arrests?
1: Well, I think so. I think that what we need to do is uh, have these clinical trials that have Begun
0: in order to compare this to other drugs that we use to sedate patients. It's really important to understand that this use of ketamine has not been approved by the FDA for sedating agitated and aggressive people, right? That's correct. But I would also point to the
1: fact that we use drugs, quote unquote, off indication all the time in medicine, right? For instance, we use anti-nausea medicines when people have headaches in the emergency department. And I would suggest to you they're very effective for that. In fact, 90% of people get better when we give anti-nausea medicines to people with headaches. And yes, there are risks to doing that. But again, If 90% of people are getting better, I would suggest to you 9 out of 10 people that are getting that are happy that they've gotten that when their headache is better when they leave the emergency department. But you would like to
0: see more research.
1: Absolutely. The hard thing is, is consenting these patients, right? These patients inherently are not able to consent for these types of studies. And so there have been efforts in order to sort of look at the safety of this and preemptively consent patients, which is not all the most effective way because you never know when patient is going to end up with this
0: agitated delirium and then end up needing this drug. I do want to compare the use of ketamine to sedate people during an arrest to the use of perhaps a chokehold. Is there any research that using a sedative like ketamine is safer than a kind of physical restraint? We can only compare those things due to historical data
1: from restraints compared to ketamine. Right. That so, would be tough to study otherwise. Absolutely. What we don't want to do is actually study patients by holding them down. That would be inhumane. But what we know historically from restraints is that anywhere from nine to fifteen percent of people have injuries due to restraints. Some of those people actually die. So nine to fifteen percent got it. Some other data actually suggests that up to 38% of patients that are physically restrained end up having blood clots in their legs or their lungs. Those can be deadly? Absolutely. Those are also very dangerous. And how does that compare to ketamine? Well, ketamine, what we know is that actually some of these patients need to be put on a ventilator, right? And so that's the real kind of risk that people are discussing and that you'll hear by some of the anecdotes of people that have been sedated with ketamine.
0: Why do they need to be put on a ventilator? You said earlier that this doesn't do a lot to repress breathing.
1: That's a great question. And that's something that we're learning more and more about. What we know is, is that if you mix any sedative with other drugs, even alcohol, for instance... Because a lot of these people experience delirium have something else in their systems. Absolutely. Many other things. Alcohol is certainly number one, but things like methamphetamine, cocaine, we know when you actually mix those, then actually the risk of having respiratory depression is higher. And so that's what I think we've seen in some of these trials that look at ketamine for sedation. What can we
0: say about the numbers yet? Still too soon?
1: Well, um, we know early on, actually, it looked like about 40% of patients that actually received ketamine ended up needing to be on a ventilator. Those numbers actually seem to be lower nowadays. And again, it's unclear exactly whether or not that's just due to ketamine or it's due to the underlying drug that the patient was
0: using. Would you sit here today and say ketamine is safer than holds? Absolutely, I would say that. You would. Okay. You know, I think at the scene of an arrest, people might expect to be handcuffed or tased. And certainly there is the possibility of being shot. Plenty of stories in the news about that. I think it is not well known that one might be chemically sedated. What would you say to folks who see that as a kind of invasion I can understand the perspective there, but I think
1: that what we have to look at is what the risks of if people are not sedated. And think about it. If patient isn't sedated, then they're actually putting themselves at risk if they have to be held down, or they're putting others in the community at risk. And God forbid the police officers or the ambulance personnel
0: are actually harmed by people fighting back. I've seen excited delirium as being associated with a kind of superhuman strength. It makes the environment very volatile. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is this a widely accepted state, excited delirium? Like, what do we know about it medically? Just curious. There are lots of reasons why people
1: have excited delirium. Um, First and foremost, drugs and alcohol are the number one cause. But certainly psychiatric disease can lead to this. So you can imagine decompensated schizophrenia. Um, So somebody that is actually in the deepest throes of their schizophrenia can have this type of agitated delirium. There are other medical reasons why people can have this as well. So it's actually a relatively common condition.
0: Doctor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, Ryan. Dr. Andrew Monte is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the CU School of Medicine. We talked about first responders administering ketamine. The Denver Art Museum's enormous Claude Monet show is getting all kinds of attention, but what if it catches the wrong kind? How does the museum protect against an art heist when a collection of this size and value comes to town? CPR's Alexandra McMahon found out all she could without giving thieves an opening.
4: Okay. So we've all seen how heists go down in the movies, right? Like National Treasure.
0: The best time for us to steal it would be during the gala
5: this weekend, when the guards are distracted by the VIPs upstairs. But we'll make our way to the preservation room, where there's much less security.
4: Or Ocean's 8. We didn't just print the Toussaint from that thing. We printed a lot of jewels. And 1999's Thomas Crown Affair, where the main character actually steals. Wait for it.
0: It's water paint.
4: A Claude Monet.
0: He's been here the whole
5: time. Returned the damn thing practically as soon as he stole it.
4: So does Denver need to be worried about a Thomas Crown type making off with one of the 120 paintings here?
2: The heists rarely happen, and they rarely happen the way that they depict them in the movies.
4: That's Steve Keller. He runs his own museum security firm in Florida and has been protecting priceless art for 40-plus years. Like Keller said, the Denver Art Museum probably doesn't need to worry about burglars repelling from the ceiling under the cover of darkness. But of course, there's still risk, and he knows how museums prepare for that.
2: The security people in the exhibition have to have decent sight lines to be able to see. Uh, sometimes during the design process, bottlenecks will be built into the design of the exhibition. So the security people play a a role, an advisory role. They don't tell the exhibit designer how to design the exhibit, but they'll step in from time to time and say, this is a bottleneck as we see it. And I think that this doorway needs to be wider or the label might have a very small font. And so people crowd in close, blocking the view by the security people or the audio tour message might be too long So people assemble in a particular location long enough that a bottleneck develops.
4: Now, a few people around the newsroom who've seen the exhibit told me they're surprised at what appears to be a lack of security they saw while there. Keller has an explanation for that, too.
2: There's a theory that we follow that there's enough security visible in the gallery that the bad guy will look for it and see it. But the average visitor to the museum will not see it, will not feel like there's a lot of surveillance, will not feel like there's a lot of security. It gives them a more relaxed atmosphere and uh, they don't feel like they're being watched. Technology today is such that you don't have to see it for it to be there.
4: Technology like miniature cameras, alarms that will sound if somebody tries to pull a painting off the wall, and lots of motion detectors in the exhibit space that go live after hours. When talking about risk, you also have to factor in the price tag of this exhibit. 120 paintings from 70 different lenders all over the world makes it one of the most comprehensive Monet exhibitions in the U.S. in more than 20 years.
6: The current art museum exhibit in Denver not only is a great art historical type of exhibition, but it would also bring interest from, I would say, I would think from Thieves.
4: This is Bob Whitman. He's a former FBI agent and has been referred to as the Indiana Jones of the stolen art world. Now, before you even start to wonder, the value of a Monet is not something anyone wants to go on the record about. Probably for good reason.
6: Museums never want to talk about value. And the reason for that is because they don't want to give anybody any ideas. An exhibition around the country that could have hundreds of paintings by Renoir or Monet or even Manet would be in the hundreds of millions in value. So it's not a good idea usually to come up with specific amounts.
4: Here's a value I can share, though. One billion dollars. That's approximately the worth of the jewelry stolen in Germany last month on one of those rare occasions where a full-fledged heist actually took place. It was at the Green Vault Museum in
6: Dresden. The individuals broke a window, busted the glass, went in, used a smash-and-grab technique where they took axes and destroyed cabinets. They then grabbed almost a billion dollars worth of uh, Saxony jewelry from the 16th century and made their getaway. But as they did that, they burned their getaway car up. It only took five minutes for the police to respond. But the electronics of that museum were a little bit left to be desired because upon seeing the videos, you could see that they didn't have very good night vision. So that the videos are very, very dark and grainy. And it took a long time for the guards to contact the police So because of that delay, I I believe that's part of the reason why these people got away with it.
4: But Whitman doesn't think they'll be on the lam for too long. You see, the tricky thing about stealing art is not the theft itself, but actually the selling part.
6: You know, sometimes these thieves who create these elaborate heists, they're much better uh, criminals than they are businessmen because they haven't thought out what they're actually going to do with these paintings once they have them. There really is no black market for art. I mean, when it comes to, say, automobiles, you can take a car, you can steal it, you can chop it up, take the parts. Sometimes the sale of the parts is worth more than a car originally was. But when it comes to art, to the art market, because artworks are unique, you, you can't chop them up, you can't do anything with them, you have to keep them in great shape. And they are known pieces. So in the end, when you when someone tries to sell one, that's when they get busted.
4: Even with heists like the one in Germany happening in real life, Keller says they still do their best to purposely make the movies unrealistic.
2: We get calls a couple of times a year from novelists or screenwriters that are asking us how they could rob the museum, and we sometimes tell them things that are certainly not true. We spend our career trying to make security virtually invisible, but they want us to show them bigger cameras and things that are visually conducive to the script of the movie.
4: While the Denver Art Museum declined to comment for this story out of caution, Whitman and Keller both have the utmost confidence that the art is safe.
2: People don't realize the amount of effort that goes into security and fire protection in museums, but most of these larger museums, like the Denver Art Museum, have very competent security management teams. It's good that you're doing a a broadcast on this so that they can understand that there's more to appreciate than just the beauty of the art.
4: Claude Monet, The Truth of Nature, runs at the Denver Art Museum until February 2nd. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News.
0: It is a reality of living in Colorado chipped and cracked windshields. Can't something be done to prevent this? CPR's Nathaniel Minor answers that question via Colorado Wonders.
7: Mark Bergman of Edwards is a car guy. We're in his BMW, driving down Interstate 70 in Eagle County.
8: I take care of my cars. They're not just uh, tools of transportation for me.
7: And that's why I could feel him start to get nervous as an 18-wheeler passes us. The roads here are covered with sand and small rocks to help with traction when it's snowy out. The truck's big tires kick up some of that and fling it backward, right into Mark Bergman's windshield.
8: That's the small stuff.
7: Bergman slows down to let the truck pass quickly. His Bimmer escapes unfazed today. But in the four years since he moved here from the Northeast, Bergman says he's had four windshields replaced. And one memory stands out. It was a beautiful, clear day in the late spring.
2: Probably uh, late May, early June, a
8: stone came flying and hit the windshield on my Mazda Miata. I'm just glad I had the top up. What was your reaction? Are you familiar with the seven words George Carlin said you couldn't say on TV and radio?
7: I won't get into it here, but they are not nice words. Insurance generally covers the cost of repairs and replacements, but getting them done can be a hassle. And so Bergman called me because he wanted an answer to this question.
8: Why does CDOT use very large aggregate, or stones, as I'll call them, instead of sand for
7: traction? So I called CDOT and talked to Kyle Lester, CDOT's Director of Maintenance and Operations. And he feels Mark Bergman's pain. Uh, Have you ever had your own windshield cracked?
5: Yes. I believe it's cracked right now.
7: <laughs> Lester says CDOT uses an aggregate that's a little bigger than playground sand, about a quarter inch at the largest. And he's smaller than that, and he says it would wash off the road too quickly and plug up nearby rivers. And that's a big deal. Watersheds are very fragile, and the state uses tens of thousands of tons of aggregate every winter. And there's one more reason. CDOT mixes the aggregate with liquid to help it stick to the road better. If the sand is too tiny, it'll turn into mud.
5: If you have too fine of a product, it will clump up and not leave the
7: truck. Lester admits that sometimes some bigger rocks will slip through. He blames that on quality control issues. And Lester says those issues are just a fact of life when you buy as much of this stuff as CDOT does. So I called Mark Bergman back and ran all of this by him. He was not impressed.
5: Well, I'd really like to see CDOT improve their quality control.
7: In the meantime, scenes like this will probably remain very common. What I'm going to start by doing is uh, heating this up just in this small area. Steve Moore with Novus Autoglass holds a tiny blowtorch. Yeah, you can get this at Home Depot for 30 bucks. We're in a garage of a home in the Vale Valley. Steve Moore is leaning over a Mercedes Benz with a tiny chip in its windshield. He says if chips aren't fixed at this stage, they could likely spread into bigger cracks. Moore evaporates the moisture from the glass, so the repair resin will hold tight. Next, he attaches a tool with a big suction cup to the glass. So basically, I'm forcing glue into the damage and removing the air. Then he uses a UV light to cure the resin and make it hard. The whole thing takes about 20 to 30 minutes. Moore says he's done this repair 10 to 15 times per day in the winter, since he started an office franchise in the early 80s. Back then, the industry was still young. People didn't know windshields could even be repaired. Novus is now a multinational conglomerate. We're all over the world. I think we're in 43 countries doing chip repairs. And uh, obviously Colorado is one of the biggest markets for it. He's done this repair nearly 200,000 times. But he says he doesn't get bored. I run into friends all day long. It's pretty social and uh, I'm helping people out. And they're usually pretty happy when I'm there and happy when I leave. It's not hard to see why, because even if drivers here have to deal with little dings and cracks, the view through that glass of the Colorado Rockies, it makes it all worth
0: it. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Okay, what do you wonder about? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with little-known chapters of Colorado history that have majorly shaped the state. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Hi, I'm
9: Stuart VanderWilt, President of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org. And thank you.
0: Hit the road virtually anywhere in the state. And even if you don't know where you're going, you're likely to end up somewhere interesting. That's the idea behind History Colorado's new podcast, Lost Highways. The goal is to explore stories that are little known, overlooked, but that have helped shape the American West we're going to listen to some highlights with History Colorado's chief creative officer, Jason Hansen. Hi, Jason. Hi, Ryan. And one of the hosts of Lost Highways, Noel Black. Howdy, Noel. Hi, Ryan. I'm curious, Jason, if History Colorado has a lot of old audio to mine. And how well-suited is audio to teaching history when you you saying? We have a ton
9: of old audio to mine. We have oral histories that go back generations in our archives. And this is a way to, to bring them out into the light. A lot of them are on old reel-to-reel or other formats that aren't so easy to play anymore. So this is giving us the opportunity to digitize some of them
0: as we go. And and let me just say, reel-to-reel, for those who might not have been alive when when it existed, is almost like a giant cassette tape in which tape goes from one spool to the other. That's right. If you've seen a
9: James Bond movie, (laughs) it's it's,
0: it's that. So you've had to digitize some of this stuff. We're working on digitizing some of it, and
9: uh, we love using this audio. I mean, it's been... There for researchers all along, and and this is a way to to bring it out into the light. And I think audio is just so great for telling these historical stories because it creates an imaginative soundscape in a way that, you know, visual... Shows you exactly what you're supposed to think, but audio leaves it to your imagination, as you know. Um, audio's got some strengths. Theater of the mind, that's it's right. Been called
0: Noel, what have been the biggest surprises as you've produced the first season of Lost Highways?
10: So one of the biggest surprises for me was uh, actually came after I first arrived at History Colorado. I was getting a tour of the building and being introduced as the new podcast producer and host and one of the people in the building this woman Erica Warzel uh, mentioned that the Boulder County Courthouse had just been put on the National Historic Registry uh, because a woman named Clela Rorix who had been the clerk and recorder in 1975 had issued six gay marriage licenses at that time and I Was truly shocked uh, having grown up in Colorado. I grew up in a queer family and I had never heard this story. And I immediately thought that's got to go on the list of
0: podcasts. That's got to go on the list. Uh, So the episode you produced explores the evolution of same sex unions in Colorado. And uh, indeed, Rorex was a Boulder County clerk in 75 when she issued one of the first same sex marriage licenses in the United States and blending interviews that you did and archival tape, Uh, she shared what went into her decision, the backlash, and an unusual request she got.
11: Three months after I had been sworn in, two guys from Colorado Springs came into my office, and they were both named Dave. And they asked me for a marriage license because the Colorado Springs County Clerk had said to them, We don't do that kind of thing here. But you might go to Boulder, knowing Boulder's reputation.
10: Cleveland knew the request was unusual, but she was a stickler for procedure.
11: I didn't know if I could issue a marriage license. I looked at the marriage code. It didn't specifically say that marriage had to be between a man and a woman. But I told them I'd have to get a legal opinion from our district attorney. And that's what I did.
8: Clela took the issue to Assistant DA Bill Wise. And after researching it, he told her that Colorado state law wasn't explicit in either direction. Legally, she could do whatever she wanted.
11: The way it was written did not specify that marriage had to be between a man and a woman. I mean, of course it was assumed that that was it. There would never any other assumption ever made. But it didn't say that.
10: Clela took a couple of days to think about it.
11: And I decided I would do it.
8: On March 26, 1975, Clela Rorax issued a marriage license to Dave McCord and Dave Zamora, who were married the following day. Here's Clela again from her oral history with the Carnegie Library for Local History in Boulder.
11: I issued that license based really on one premise, other than, of course, the fact it was not illegal. I was a feminist asking for equal rights. And I felt very deeply, who was I to deny equal rights to someone else who was asking for the same? And that was pretty much at the core of all of it and why I made the decision to issue those licenses.
10: It's important to point out here that the license Clela issued was not the first.
8: The first same-sex marriage license ever issued in the United States was given to Michael McConnell and Jack Baker in Blue Earth County, Minnesota in 1971. They got it through some clever legal maneuvering that involved changing Jack's name to the gender-neutral Pat. Their case was the first to legally challenge the definition of marriage, but was eventually turned down by the U.S. Supreme Court.
10: And there was at least one other license, which was issued to Sam Burnett and Tony Sakuya in Maricopa County, Arizona in January 1975. But their marriage failed to attract national media attention and was ruled void by a judge within a few months. What made Clela's licenses different was the media frenzy
8: and political backlash that they spawned.
11: I was naive in terms of the degree of hell that followed. I had no real conception of how negatively, really, that that would be received by so many. I mean, I knew it was something different, for sure. It was the hate that I wasn't expecting, the pure hate. And it came from all over the country as word spread. And I didn't really think that word would really spread. To me, this was a a decision that I was making based on our state statute, based on my right as a county clerk.
10: Clela got a lot of angry, sometimes hateful phone calls. Some warned that Boulder would become a gay mecca or that property values would plummet. Others presumed she must be a lesbian. The stress of the
8: public backlash gave her crippling migraines. Despite the vitriol, Clelia stood by her
10: decision. She issued licenses to three more couples over the next several weeks. Then, on April 15th, a colorful local man named Roz Howard showed up at the courthouse.
11: And I looked and I just thought, what is this? You know, all these media vans coming. I see him standing there with his horse. And it took a minute, but all of a sudden it dawned on me that he was going to try to get a license for that horse. So I tried to call the DA's office to see what they would advise, but they were unavailable. I I have no idea how it came to me to play it the way I did. It just, because I had no idea what I was going to say until he was standing in front of me and I was asking this question and that question off the marriage license and asked Dolly's age, and that's when he said eight, and I just, Somehow, the presence of mind to lay down my pen and say, well, I'm sorry, but Dolly is underage. Can't have a license without parental permission.
0: That's from the episode Six Gay Weddings and a Horse from Lost Highways in History, Colorado. Jason, how do you think Clela Rorex's actions resonate today?
9: Well, I think we can see pretty clearly that she was a woman ahead of her time, and one of the things I love about her story is she wasn't a, a gay rights activist. That wasn't why she did what she did. She was a feminist, and she was, uh, as we heard, thinking, if I want these equal rights, who am I to deny them to others? And I think we think a lot about, are we on the right side of history You know, in our own lives today? And this was a woman who showed us that one way, one really powerful way, To make sure we are on the right side of history is to expand that sphere of liberty, that American project that gives more freedom to more people. And I just I love that about this story that she didn't end up where she thought she was going to end up in the story. But it has resonated for uh, more than a generation. You know, we interviewed Governor Polis for this story as well. And he was born just down the street the same year in
0: 1975. Yeah. Yeah, isn't
10: that amazing? How do you think this resonates today, Noel? Gay marriage really wasn't even on anyone's minds, including people within the gay liberation movement. They weren't interested in it. They weren't particularly concerned about it. And now, you know nearly 50 years later, we have the first openly gay governor in Colorado who has also small children. And, you know, it resonates, I think, nationally, but it also resonates for me very personally. And uh, to see that, to see, you know, Governor Polis um, with his husband and his kids and their goofy tennis shoes uh, in that photograph
0: that was going around after he was (laughs) elected, it was incredible. An episode with uh, unexpectedly, I think, similar themes tells the story of singer Dean Reed, he was born in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, moved to Hollywood when he was 19, and appeared destined to become a teen heartthrob in the 1960s. Uh, but then he became a socialist while on tour in South America and moved to East Germany traveling as well across the Soviet Union.
3: And think that time was not so long.
2: Love, love, love I love no one but you. I
10: Still struggling to make it in America, when Dean Reed stepped off his plane in Santiago in March 1962, he was a star.
1: There were hundreds of thousands of people waiting for me at the airport with motorcades, with police going into the city, going to bed at night with the whole plaza in front of the presidential palace uh, screaming for me. Of course this is a great shock uh, to a young boy from Colorado because it happened also so fast.
10: It's hard to say why Dean's records were such duds at home in Hollywood, but hits in South America. But between his good
8: looks and his accessible folksy pop lyrics, people in Chile loved him. Here's Will Roberts.
10: Every time he goes to the hotel window, thousands of people are waiting outside screaming. The applause was incredible. I mean, the money, the opportunity was there, that there he was truly loved and it
5: wasn't a fight. And not only does he change Chile, but Chile changes him.
10: Here's Peter Schmeltz, associate professor of musicology at Arizona State University. He studies the music and politics of the Cold War.
9: That's what makes it... um... An interesting story is that the reason that he started off on this path was because he was getting the attention that he wanted, right? He wanted to be a movie star and a pop star, and so he went to where the audience was, which is how he ends up in 1961 in uh, Chile, right? Because that summer romance song, uh, song, summertime romance, was such a hit there, and he went, and there were crowds of adoring fans, and I think that that was... Those crowds
8: changed him, but not in the way they would change most people. He had already seen the dark side of Hollywood
10: fame, and he didn't want it. Now he saw a much bigger world, and a much darker reality through the lenses of his sudden stardom. There was something almost messianic about it. And at the same time,
9: then he develops this sense of, um, this sense of belief in social justice, right? He goes to Santiago, and he sees these slums, and he says, this is terrible. I can't believe people live like this. What can I do to help?
0: That's from the Lost Highways podcast episode, Rock Around the Block, as in Eastern Block. Uh, what do you think Reed's story says about social norms
10: and ideals? So what I think my co-host Tyler and I really came away with from that story is the price that you can pay for your ideals when you're incredibly committed to them. Uh, Reed's story is so fascinating for that in the sense that he, when he went to Hollywood, he really got this sense of the dark side of it. And he had a teacher who really influenced him, encouraged him to stick to his ideals, which he did for his entire career. But what that cost him was the ability to have an audience in his home country, in his hometown. And he really struggled with that for his entire career. He was truly one of the most famous people in the world, everywhere, but in the United States. And he struggled with that
0: until the very end of his life. You co-host Lost Highways with Tyler Hill. Tyler couldn't be with us today, but Noel, you and Tyler both grew up in Colorado. You both have journalism backgrounds Both have worked in public radio. Uh, how, How has that informed your work on Lost Highways? Well, it's been interesting because we've been invited
10: into this, you know, the state's history museum as journalists. And so we get to come in not as historians with this, you know, expected to have this whole body of knowledge about Colorado history or anything. And we get to really look at it with fresh eyes and, and see it with the audience in mind. And and I think that's been a big part of it. There's been many stories that we've that we've done where people in the building are like, oh, Dean Reed, we've heard that story so many times. And I, I, I'll say, I've asked, you know, 20 people outside of here and nobody's heard that story.
0: Just because a historian has
10: heard it does not mean everyone has heard that's it. That's right.
9: It's a hard truth. But it's, uh, it's one we have to to recognize at the at the museum. Uh, that's been, I think, one of the uh, most pleasant surprises for me is, you know, hiring two journalists and setting them loose in our archives, which span 13,000 years of human history in Colorado. And then seeing what they thought were these really interesting stories, which they brought such a different lens to it than, than why. White- it's true that Noel would say, what about this story? And I'd say... I don't know, that story's been told a lot of times, and he says not to anyone that we're going to be talking to Mm. on this podcast. And he's been right, I think.
0: Let's dip into an episode called Mascots, Masks Off. It focuses on the stereotypes of indigenous people, from mascots to marketing.
5: Little Lug is a dancing figure with a a tomahawk uh, in one hand. He's got uh, two eagle feathers uh, in his headband, and one of them is broken. Well, if you know much about Indian culture and our use of of eagle feathers, you would never dance around with a broken eagle feather. It's a sacred object. It's a religious object. It would be uh, burnt. There would be prayers
10: uh, over it. Baca and his brothers were the only Native Americans at their high school. The dissonance between their real lives as teenagers in Southern California at the time and the way the culture saw them in the caricatures of Indians greeted them every day when they arrived at school.
5: In the center of campus, big grassy area where everybody met for lunch, there was this 25-foot tall uh, carved wooden uh, warrior. Uh, He's got a a, a loincloth on, nothing else, uh, hair hanging down his back, a, a war club sitting on the ground. His arms are crossed in the uh, Stoic Indian looking off uh, to the west position.
8: Baca himself was able to blend in because he wore his hair short. But his younger brother got singled out.
5: He was kicked off the cross-country team because he grew his hair down to his shoulders. And they said that violates the school regulations. I explained to the school district that he grew his hair long because in our tribe, we wear our hair uncut for religious reasons. The school said, well, we're not telling him he can't practice his religion. We're just telling him he can't participate in after-school sports if he wears his hair past his ears."
8: Desperate to be part of the school and to feel included, Baca's brother offered to be the little Ug mascot at sporting events. But his long hair still prevented him from participating in after-school events.
5: So instead, the white kid puts on a wig down past his shoulders and a brown face, which my brother already had, uh, and he's the school mascot. That is what I call the personification uh, of irony. When an Indian kid can't be the school mascot, an Indian, but a white kid can.
10: These experiences made Lawrence Baca hyper-aware of the ways that caricatures and romanticized images of his culture were used to cover up and soften what he calls the original sin of America.
5: The original sin in America is the slaughter and subjugation of American Indians. American Indians were being slaughtered and their land stolen for 150 years before the first slave was brought over. Slavery was ugly, it was nasty, it was bad, it was vile, but it wasn't the original sin.
10: Quite simply, says Baca, Americans haven't come to terms with the fact that their country is built on stolen land, nearly cleared of its original inhabitants in a centuries-long campaign of genocide.
5: Psychologists will tell you, you you couple that with the concept of defeat and ownership. We own you. Therefore, we own your image. We get to glorify your image because we're embarrassed by what we did to you two and three hundred years ago. And so we then create all of this fantasy around certain Native images. And then, uh, as I say to audiences, we use Indian imagery to sell products to white folks.
10: The magnitude of this sin can be measured in some ways, says Baca, in the sheer number of products that have used Native American imagery. His extensive
8: collection of everything from Land O'Lakes butter, Calumet baking soda, and American spirit cigarette
10: packages is now at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. Just walk down the aisles in your nearest grocery store, and you'll still spot half a dozen on the shelves. And
8: you'll see products like Aunt Jemima pancake mix and syrup, cream of wheat, and others that trade on African-American stereotypes.
10: But it's mascots for sports teams, says Baca, that really magnify the extent of the problem where Native Americans are concerned.
5: We get told as Native people all the time that everything from the Washington Football Club to Chief Wahoo honors Indian people. Well, I will tell you how we know, above all else, that it is not an honor. Because there is no other race coming forward and saying, why is it always the Indians? If it were an honor, all of those groups would be standing up and saying, we want it too. But they don't want it.
0: You found there are more than 30 public high schools in Colorado that still use, you know, stereotypes or caricatures of American Indians in their mascots. What kind of discussion do you hope to spark with this and, and maybe with other episodes of the podcast, Jason? So with this
9: episode in particular, I think this is uh, a story that we think is important to tell. As uh, an agency of the state of Colorado, we have a government-to-government relationship with the tribal governments, and that does add a, a layer of diplomacy hmm. to how we approach these stories. So the tribes were willing partners in this story. You won't find uh, unanimity of opinion in Indian country on mascots, but you will find a uh, Everybody feeling like this is a story that we ought to explore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it speaks to the larger project here, which is we wanted to tell stories that resonated today. These aren't stories, as much as I love stories about things that happened in the past that are just really neat stories. We wanted to talk about how we got to now and why the world that we're living in today looks the way it does. And I think this story and each of those stories gets at that. I had no idea. You know, it just seems so natural to us. Everybody has a, a team mascot, right? Well, there, there's a particular history to that. And the, the notion of mascots arose at the same time that Americans were starting to feel like they had, quote, won the West. And so you see a lot of these Western uh, mascots and Western imagery, including Native American imagery and mascots. Oh, I
0: see. It's It was almost a desire to represent what th- perhaps... Western civilization had defeated, had colonized?
9: Yeah, I think you see this tendency uh, in a lot of different arenas where once something has been made safe in your mind, then it's okay to honor it and Uh, and make tributes
10: to it. And appropriate it as well. And appropriate it. And just to say, from Tyler's and my perspective, that we had gone to one of the exhibitions in the museum that was written on the land, which is about the Ute tribes, and we saw a football helmet from the Utah Utes, which was part of the exhibit, and it had the Utes uh, seal from their flag on the helmet as part of their imagery for the team, and it had, and we read the label copy, and it was all about the fact that. The NCAA had required that teams who had Native American mascots either get the blessing of the tribes, permission from the tribes that they were representing, or they had to find another mascot and change it. And so this helmet was an example where the Utah Utes had gone to the Ute tribes and built this relationship. Oh, interesting. And been allowed to keep that imagery and, and use it in a more respectful way. They now give out pamphlets at their football games that explain the relationship and ask that the fans uh, be respectful and honor the tribes. So it was this really fascinating way in which they had changed the dialogue about using those kinds of mascots. So
0: they were allowed to use the flag in addition yes. on the helmet. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're working on season two of Lost Highways. How about a preview of a story you want to tell? Well, one of the stories that we uh, plan to tell. There's a series
10: actually from Southern Colorado. We're going to head down to Trinidad, um, and we
0: sex change capital of the world. Indeed, is and that what we this is about?
10: we're we're planning to do a story about Stanley Biber, who really made Trinidad into uh, the the quote unquote sex change capital
0: of the world, and and look at his legacy there. Um, this we're is also the story of a war surgeon who becomes essentially a preeminent doctor early on in sex change operations in the United States.
10: That's right, and I did. I had the the amazing uh, luck and pleasure to to meet him and interview him uh, shortly before he died. Uh, and just a fascinating character. He was so incredibly macho. Um, and he told me at the time, he, I, I asked him why he had essentially gotten into doing this. And he said, well, because I, I could. And he said, and I knew I would be the best at it if I did it. And huh. he, he took it on essentially as a challenge. And, and it, was, it was very fascinating to me. And he very much admitted that he was he was very macho and very proud, and he was like, well, I'm going to be the best at this, even if this is this incredibly you know, unusual thing to do at the time.
9: The story that I'm really excited about uh, is one we're calling The Triplet Murders. Uh, this is a serial killer in Denver in the 1890s that I was not familiar with uh, who targeted sex workers. And what's interesting about this story from a contemporary perspective is not only does it shed light on Women's existence who weren't at the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrums in Denver around the turn of the century. but it also highlights the cultural diversity uh, of the city. These women were coming from a variety of backgrounds. and I think there's a lot to unpack in this story. Mm. I don't know much about it, which is maybe why I'm very excited to to see what comes from from the exploration here, but I think it's going to be a, a really compelling episode and
0: you're borrowing from the craze of true crime podcasts there gentlemen thanks for being with us appreciate it thanks ryan thank you so much ryan jason hansen is chief creative officer at history colorado and noel black co-hosts the new podcast lost highways which just wrapped its first season and that's a wrap for us today i'm ryan Warner. this is colorado matters from cpr knows